Uh, so uh, treat others as you would like to be treated. That was um, perceived to be the number one um, version of the Ten Commandments that people would like to have if they could choose one uh, for the 21st century. Now, it sounds very similar to what we read in uh, chapter 7, verse 12, uh, just to kind of refresh your memory. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. And, and that statement is, is one of the most famous um, statements in the New Testament. It's one of the most famous statements, if you like, um, in the world. Um, it's, um, it's not original to the New Testament. Uh, it, it, it kind of brings together an idea that was floating around in the, in the ideas of the first century. And Jesus brings it together in this statement as a kind of summary of the things that he's been saying in this great Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew chapter 5 uh, through to 7. Um, and it's described sometimes as the golden rule. Apparently, uh, one emperor uh, put these, these words up um, in, in his palace in, in gold. Although usually um, the, um, the, the, the reference to the golden rule is not quite so positive as we read here. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. It was more kind of negative that you, kind of, you don't do um, to others the things that you wouldn't want done to you. This is much more positive um, and, uh, and Jesus wants us to kind of take that particular one on board. It's kind of a mirror of that statement in the Beatitudes, that the wonderful statements that Jesus begins his sermon with, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Or the words of the Lord's Prayer, that we, we ask for forgiveness as we forgive those who have sinned against us. There's a sense in which we, we recognise that our behaviour and our relationship with other people is linked. The way that we deal with others is in some way related to the way that God will deal with us. So um, this is um, a statement we're going to come back to um, in a little while. But just, um, just to say that you, you need a little bit of wisdom to apply um, a statement like this. It's a, a flexible statement. It's a rule of thumb statement. It's not so much like a rule or a commandment. It's a, it's a statement that um, sits in your mind and sits in your heart and you use it in a flexible way in this situation and in that situation. You have to think about how you feel. You need to think about what it feels like if people ignore you or blank you or lie to you. What does it feel like to be let down by another person? What does it feel like to be deceived by another person? Well, you make sure that in your behaviour, you don't put people into that situation. Make sure that you, in your dealings with other people, deal with them in such a way that you would like to be dealt with if the shoe wasn't on another foot. Um, wonderful creativity. It reminds me of a statement in the book of Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 26. Um, and this is the statement, verses um, Four and five. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in your own eye, or you'll be wise, his wise in your own eyes. Now, which one is it? Do you answer the fool according to their folly, or do you not? It calls for wisdom, doesn't it? Each day, each person we meet, 
each situation we come to requires us to think flexibly, think on our feet. What should I do in this circumstance? How can I deal with this person in a way that applies the golden rule? How can I do to others what I would want them to do to me? Now, of course, this could make you rather paranoid, um, or, or it could kind of liberate you to be a kind of person who thinks intentionally about the people they meet in the supermarket queue, and the, the people that they meet when they're on the phone to some call centre. How do we deal with people? How do we respond to people in a way that honours the Lord Jesus and also kind of respects the way that we would like to be treated if we could? Sometimes we need to listen to ourselves, don't we? Sometimes we need to look at ourselves and the way that we engage with people and think, would I have liked someone to say that to me? Would I have liked someone to have done that to me? Take a look at yourself. Have a think. Now, the golden rule doesn't mean kind of doing the right thing simply so that other people will do the right thing by you. The kind of Christmas card code. You know, if someone drops a Christmas card through your door, you kind of panic and think, oh, I must go and send them one. It's much richer and deeper than that. It it kind of indicates that you've kind of got a changed heart, that you really want to um, give and serve and benefit the people that you're engaging with. You want your words to land in a way that will be helpful to them and your reactions to land in a way that's helpful to them. Oh, go the right way. Now, the unique thing about Jesus when he uses these words is that Jesus is not simply saying these words, he's living these words. Now, they say, don't they, that you, you, you mustn't just talk the talk. You need to walk the walk. And, and the thing about Jesus is he, he makes this statement about treating people in this way, but this is the way he lives. He takes this statement and he makes it an actuality by his life. Um, the way that he speaks to people um, is a loving ministry. He lifts people by his words and he lifts people by his actions. He treats people as individuals. He comes to those people who are vulnerable and he doesn't crush them. In fact, later on in Matthew's Gospel, we're told that Jesus doesn't raise his voice loud. He doesn't break the bruised reed. He doesn't blow out the smouldering wick. He deals very gently with those who perhaps are on the edge of collapse, on the edge of vulnerability. And that's a great model of of what we're kind of reading about here. Jesus, his life, is a commentary on this statement. And and in some ways, this statement in verse 12 of, um, of Matthew 7, which I wanted to read, and thank you for actually reading that, kind of sums up this passage that we've read and sums up the whole of this Sermon on the Mount. Now, some people reckon that when they read um, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 11, it seems as though what Matthew has done is had a look in his kind of filing cabinet and found a few really helpful statements about Jesus and thought to himself, we really ought to get them into the Sermon on the Mount. Let's bung them all in. Or like someone who um, wins one of those 
um, supermarket solly, uh, trolley um, dashes, two minutes in the supermarket, grab as much as you want, that he kind of just pulls everything in and, and rushes to the checkout, and we've got Matthew chapter 7, 1 to 11. Because it does seem as though some of these phrases don't sit so well with each other. But verse 12, if this is the lens through which we're to read this apparently jumbled Sermon on the Mount ending, uh, seems to suggest that everything um, in this passage is about using our critical faculties well. Everything is about learning to assess life, words, situations well, wisely, lovingly, and all the things that uh, that Matthew has thrown into the supermarket trolley um, are covered by that theme of using our critical faculties well. So we come to that well-known statement, verse 1, a very contemporary statement in the 21st century. Do not judge. Um, that, that seems to be probably the great commandment, doesn't it, of, of 2023. Don't judge. Don't judge me. Um, to judge another, to be judgmental, is perceived to be the very worst thing that you can do. You need to give people space. You need to cut people that will slack. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. And of course, there's wisdom in that, isn't there? The person who is always critical will find that when they put a foot wrong, people will judge their action by the high standards that they've had in their critical attitudes. If you're constantly kind of looking out and seeing what's wrong with other people and you kind of put out the the critical language and the critical behaviour, well then when you fall, when you fail, people will say, well, they obviously had a very high standard. It's not as though they didn't know. They clearly did know. They, They know what's right and wrong and therefore they are judged. You know, we need to be very careful about what we say, what we do, because we'll be measured by what we say and what we do. Now, these words in Matthew 7 um, are not intended to obliterate all moral discrimination, um, as we'll kind of see when we get down to verse 6 and later on in, in in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7. And later on in the Gospel of Matthew. So we come to Matthew chapter 18 and the church is instructed in verses 15 to 20 how to deal with issues where people kind of fall out in the church, where there are problems. There's a whole mechanism where if you've got a problem with another Christian, you're told, go and speak to that person. And then if they don't listen, you're told to go to speak to them with the elders. If they don't listen then, you're told to go and speak to them in front of the whole church. There is a, a complaints procedure that Matthew lays out for the church. It indicates that the church is not simply um, a place where everyone goes round talking um, to each other as though everyone is lovely and faultless. You know, um, as though church is about saying, not so much, God, you are perfect, but you are perfect. You are perfect. Like something out of the Barbie movie. Barbie, you're perfect. Barbie, you're perfect. Ken, you're perfect. Ken, you're perfect. But we don't live in such a world. We live in a world where we're all ever so slightly imperfect, as they used to say about pants in the department store. 
All of us have things that we are not happy about concerning ourselves. All of us have said things that have been unhelpful and done things that are unhelpful. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have to recognise that, don't we? We have to recognise that we, we do live in a world where we are flawed. We are morally flawed. But, but what is uh, excluded by Jesus is a kind of judgment that is kind of judgmental, the kind of judgmental uh, judgment that speaks as though you yourself um, are, are not besmirched by the wrong that you're kind of pointing out in other people. They say that, um, you know, judging, being judgmental, is always egotistical. It's always kind of pointing out what's wrong with the, the other person and being blind, as we'll see, to what's wrong with us. You've got to think about it. Even when we forgive another person, we come up to another person and we say, I want to forgive you for blanking me last week. <laughs> Even the forgiveness that I'm giving you unveils a fault. You know, there's no need to forgive, is there, if there's, if there's no fault. Um, and of course, you say, I didn't even see you last week. <laughs> or no offence was, was, no, no, no offense was uh, intended. But even to forgive someone indicates that we do live in a world where people hurt each other, intentionally or unintentionally, and therefore, you know, to say, do not judge, is not saying exercise no moral discrimination because we, we, we wouldn't be, be Christian if we exercised no moral discrimination. There's a bit of a clue in these verses as to how this kind of action of judging and not judging um, takes place. So there in verse 2, for in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let, him, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Three times, Jesus uses the word brother. And it's a reminder, isn't it, that we're, we don't live solo lives. We live lives that are related, related to our family, related to our church, related to our society. And, you know, and therefore we, we need to learn that lesson, don't we, as, as human beings, that the universe has not been made for us. The universe is not designed for our personal comfort. Um, it's, it's not a place where we simply have the stage to air our opinions. There are other people, you know, like the, the small children who are told, you know, Johnny, um, this is not your party. And there are other children here. We need to be told that, don't we? We need to be told, Johnny, or whatever your name is, this is not your party. And there are other people around. You know, I like to speak my mind, someone says. But not, not realising that speaking their mind is like slashing a sword through the air. And people get cut and people get wounded by words that sometimes can be careless. We need to be careful if there's more than me in the world, if there is another person in the world, we need to um, remember that we need to pay attention to them. 
Now, we realise that, you know, being a brother, um, historically, can be a dangerous thing. The first two brothers were called Cain and Abel. One brother killed the other brother. It's a reminder, isn't it, that brothers, brothers can kind of rub along well, they can get along well, they can serve each other, but they can also take lumps out of each other and they can kill each other, they can harm each other. Brother. Don't judge because you're in a relationship. You need to um, seek to affirm and protect that relationship. Now, coming to this picture that Jesus uses, Jesus the carpenter using the picture about wood and sawdust. This astonishing story. Maya can see the tiny speck in your eye. But look, watch out, here comes a two by four. I decided not to bring the two by four because, you know, you ever seen the film The Plank? The man carrying the plank, walking around and, and banging people and, and places. A plank is a dangerous thing, isn't it? Dangerous thing um, if you're a long way away from it. But if someone's kind of looking at you eye to eye and, and they're trying to uh, perform some very delicate surgery in your eye, it's a, it's a real problem to have a plank coming out of your eye. Um, unless you've got really long arms. <laughs> Do not look at the speck in your brother's eye. Do not cons- consider the plank in your own eye. Now, what's, what's Jesus saying? He's saying, you know, you need to recognise that if, you, if you're kind of aware of someone else's fault, that you too are someone who struggles with faults. If there's something quite not right with another person, you are someone about whom there are things that are not quite right. You know, this reminds me a little bit of the story um, of David in the Old Testament, when someone comes and tells him a parable about someone who has stolen a tiny sheep, a man who's got lots of herds, lots of animals, and he goes and steals a, a tiny sheep from someone who just has a tiny, a tiny sheep. And, and David becomes really angry, he becomes very angry. He's the king and he says, this man must, must answer for this crime. And then Nathan, because he's been indirect here, Nathan the prophet says, you're the man. He's been telling a story and the story is about David's own actions of taking another man's wife. And putting that man into the very hottest place of the battle so that he'll be killed to cover over the actions that he has performed. It's possible, isn't it, to become very heated, uh, full of righteous indignation about another person's fault when sometimes we were involved in the fault ourselves. They say, don't they, sometimes that those, those preachers who've been caught... Um, with their pants down, as it were, caught in sexual immorality, can sometimes be those who speak very vociferously about those subjects as a mask for their own infidelity. It's possible, isn't it, that sometimes we can become very heated about the actions of another person when, in fact, we're struggling with our own issues. And maybe, instead of judging, we need to say to someone, please give me some help. Sometimes 
the really angry man, the really angry woman, the really judgmental man, the really judgmental woman is kind of hurt on the inside and they need help, healing, forgiveness, therapy. They need some wires replaced in their brain, in their heart, in their conscience. When you see clearly, when you see clearly, having removed the plank, well, then you can remove the speck from the eye. I don't know if any of you have ever seen, I showed it to an American um, guy who worked for us for two years. I, I showed him a few shows of the two Ronnies and, uh, and also of Faulty Towers, just to give him a little bit of a, um, a sense of, of British culture. <laughs> and there is, a, there is a, an episode of the, the two Ronnies where um, they're in an optician shop and uh, one Ronnie is the optician, the other is the, the patient. And uh, you, you know the sign, don't you? you, know, can, you can you read the top line? And, and in this, the E was kind of almost from the top of the ceiling down to the bottom. And uh, he could read the E, but after that, there was nothing. No reading. And then they got the thing, you know, the thing, better, worse. Better, worse. And you knew something was wrong because the optician... Um, took a spoon from the table and put it in the machine, you know, and better, worse. It was a spoon. And then the patient and the optician put their glasses down on the table and the patient picked up the optician's glasses and the optician picked up the patient's glasses. And then they said, my, I can see! And of course, you know, you can't really be an optician if you can't see. And you can't really help another person with their moral fault unless you can see clearly. See clearly the fact that you are a wounded healer. See clearly that you um, have experienced some of the, the things that you're kind of seeing at fault with them. See, when you have a clear eye, not only can you see the speck in the eye, but you can see the possibility that that person could change. You can see the possibilities of God's love at work in their lives. You can see someone who's not simply being awkward or sinful or rebellious, but someone who could be on the cusp of change, who could be a different person, who could be transformed by God's grace. It's always nice to have an amen wherever it comes from. You know, Paul, Paul in Galatians 6, kind of seems to grasp this concept. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Yeah, gently. You know, recognising that you need to deal people gently. You know, the, the plank approach, you know, we just put out their eye as you're trying to mend their eye. That's not helpful. But, Jesus says, Christians do need to be a little critical. Verse 6, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. 
There's a statement in Matthew 15 where Jesus has a woman, a Syrophoenician woman, come to him and ask for help. And Jesus says, you know, we can't take the food, the children's food from the table and give it to the dogs. Jesus said that. That's a sermon for another time. um, Worth reflecting on. But the thinking was, you know, the dogs, the pigs, were, were those that didn't deserve the best things. It would be foolish to give pig pearls. It would be, be a foolish thing to do, wouldn't it? Yeah. Obviously. And Jesus says, you need to be careful about how you dish out truth, the message. So Jesus, um, he, he treated different people differently. He treated Nicodemus differently from the way he treated the Samaritan woman. When he was uh, about to go to the cross, Pilate asks him a question and Jesus answers the question. He meets Herod and he stands silent before Herod. He doesn't, he doesn't speak to him. Presumably he perceives him as the pig that doesn't deserve the pearls. Someone once made a very interesting observation about the Christian gospel. That no one ought to be able to hear the gospel a second time when there are people in the world who've never heard it for the first time. Now, I think that's a generalisation. We shouldn't make it into a rule. But it's an interesting comment, isn't it? Sometimes the church can spend all of its energy on people who've said, I'm not interested. Instead of spending its energy on reaching those people who've never had an opportunity to hear the good news in the first place. We need to use our critical faculties We need to think about those people who are open and those people who are wasting our time. Those people who might might be responsive and those who have already made it clear that they're not. Of course, one of the things that our critical faculty does is that we kind of train it on not only people, but we train it on God. Where is God when you need him? Why is this happening to me? How come I've prayed about this and nothing is different? One of the ways that we, we use our critical faculty is to accuse God of not knowing our postcode, of not being interested in our circumstances, of somehow turning the other way when we're in our greatest need. And maybe... That's what verses 7 to 11 are addressing here. How to knock on God's door. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks, the door will be opened. See, Jesus is saying, God is not a reluctant father. God is not a stingy father God is not someone that you need to somehow impress. Um, He is someone who is available to you. Ask, seek, knock. Maybe there is an indication with those three things that perhaps praying is a bit more than saying your prayers. That Sometimes praying is being persistent, being hungry before God, seeking him, 
calling upon him, knocking, knocking maybe till our, our hands are bleeding on the door, asking, seeking, knocking, a perseverance, a prevailing with God. But what is clear is that Jesus wants us to, to recognise that there is a door that is ready to be opened. There is a willingness in the heart to respond to us. Now, we mustn't mistake what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying that prayer is somehow like a chocolate machine. Put in your coin and out of the bottom will come the Cadbury's or your chocolate of choice. As though there's something mechanistic about prayer. Jesus speaks about the relationships with brothers and here he's speaking about the relationship with the father. The rhythm of relationship. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a snake? Or if then you're, you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Prayer is a rhythm. I, t- I tend to think of kind of the spiritual life as kind of breathing in and breathing out. We breathe in God's words, breathed out, and we breathe out our prayers to him in speaking to him. Breathing in, breathing out, the rhythm of life. Ask, seek, knock, children of God, coming to the Father, the rhythm of life. Praying is something which is our vital breath. It's something which is part and parcel of the rhythm of our lives. Uh, you know, sometimes prayer is, you know, a bit like those little things in the corner of a room break in case of emergency. Prayer is sometimes only ever used in emergency. Prayer is life. God's our father and he wants us to talk to him. And this father is willing to give us good things. Who will ask for bread and be given a stone? Kind of bread and was kind of shaped a little bit like a stone. Um, who will you know, um, ask for a fish and be given a, a snake. Just imagine, you know, someone uh, phones you up and says, will you go and get me a pizza? And you come back with a pizza box and the pizza box is opened and instead of a pizza, there's a landmine in the box. What kind of weird person would do that? What weird person would even think of that? No, he's a father. He loves you. He wants what's best for you. That's why sometimes what we ask for is not given to us. Um, Many people have said, you know, um, I've asked for many things in my life that if I were given them, my life would be ruined. And sometimes God doesn't give us what we immediately ask for because he's looking for what's best for us. Billy Graham, the, the evangelist, his wife said, I asked God to marry the wrong man several times before I finally married my husband, Billy Graham. And prayer can sometimes be like that, can't it? We, we pray for things that are not helpful to us. He's the father. And if we ask for a snake, he wants to give us a fish. And he'll kind of help us to see that we need the fish. Um, praying is not just us getting off our chest making demands of God, it's also a revising chamber where our requests get refined and shaped into the way that the Father is pleased to give us. Do you notice that statement, how much more, 
how much more? It's a phrase that was used at the end of chapter six um, about God's provision for his people. How much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? How much more? We sometimes sing, you're a good, good father. Yes, you are. And he is. He is. He is generous. He is generous to a fall. So we return to that statement. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. If the father treats you with such generosity, well then treat other people with generosity. Now, we said at the beginning that this is not so much like a a law or a regulation that you kind of put up on the wall um, to, um, to, to, to govern the way that you think. It is rather something that requires imaginative application. We need to use wisdom to use the golden rule. It's about being wise. It's about being godlike. Now, probably most Christians would say this is a great rule. And it reflects what the Channel 4 survey um, reckoned to be the number one alternative first of the Ten Commandments. We all admire this statement. We all praise this statement. What Jesus wants us to do is to do this statement. You know, the words of Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, are greatly admired. It's the greatest sermon of all time. These are the greatest words of all time. Uh, even people of other religions uh, recognise that. But if you've kind of gone through the Sermon on the Mount and you kind of think to yourself, my, they're great words, you've missed the point. These are great words for living. These are great words to apply to our lives and to allow it to soak into our lives. Don't just admire my words, says Jesus. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Kind of a a day or two of that um, in Bolney might have an amazing impact. Bolney, Haywards Heath, Lansing, Brighton, London and beyond. My, what would that be like in Parliament? What would it be like around the meal table when there's, there's been an argument? What might it be like in the workplace? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you for your word here in 